Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the conversation here on TYT. I am your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. What's up? Um, as you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, President Trump's failed attempts to maintain in power and the many, many failed cases um, that have that have been thrown out by different courts. But my next guest has an idea of the sort of the final frontier of this failed um, Trump coup. And I'm so glad to welcome him. He's a professor of law at Harvard Law School. Please welcome Larry Lessig. Larry, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, okay, so we know that all these cases have imploded. Rudy Giuliana, Jenna Ellis, they've they've gotten COVID among just sort of floating pretty thin cases around why millions of ballots should be thrown out in various states. But you've got a theory about one final play that the Trump administration has left up their sleeve. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the thing I'm worried about is that all of these failed cases, all of these fights about whether, in fact, the election was fair, um, are just misdirection, like a magician's misdirection. Mm. And that, in fact, the game is going to be played around state legislatures exercising what some people think is their constitutional power to appoint electors, um, a slate of electors, contrary to the slates selected by the people's vote. Now, this, this theory, let's call it the superpower theory of state legislatures, um, the, uh, is supported by some of the justices on the Supreme Court, but it's been explicitly articulated by Trump supporters as giving them a ground, an argument, for allowing the legislature to just ignore the votes of the people and pick their own slate of electors and have that slate of electors counted on January 6th. Right. From a legal perspective, this is just crazy talk. Um, but from uh, but this is not going to be decided ultimately as a legal matter. It's going to be decided as a political matter. And that's the that's the part here that scares me. So you're basically saying that these electors that uh, their vote is coming up pretty soon in which they have to they're bound to vote generally um, the way that the people voted in each of their state that they could actually um, be cajoled by Republican state legislators into um voting a different way or that the Republican legislators will just choose different electors who are pro-Trumpian? Right. So in 2016, we had a big fight about what we called, what, what's been called faithless electors. Right. But this is really a fight about faithless legislatures, because this is not about trying to persuade Democratic electors to vote for Donald Trump. Good luck with that. That's just never going to happen. But what could happen and what they've been talking about uh, happening, what they've been planning, Steve Bannon was talking about this in the summer, 
is to just have the state legislature pick another slate of electors. And it would be a Republican slate of electors. And then send the votes of these Republican electors in with the votes of the Democratic electors. And then it's up to Congress to decide which they will count. Now, again, I want to emphasize from a legal perspective, this is just crazy talk. There's just no yeah. way to understand the Constitution giving them this power. And, it's and I'd love to map out a little bit about why that's true. But the Please. scary thing about it is that it's not a legal question at the end. It's a political question. Right. I mean, this is not the first unprecedented thing we would see under the Trump administration. Um, so, hey, why not? I mean, I, yeah. I think it's as believable as anything else. Else, So what does that look like for them? What states are they banking on? You know, I was looking into this a little bit and apparently, and I, you know, I think we're all getting sort of a constitutional lesson in the Trump administration, um, that if states verify or certify their elections before December 14th, when the electors vote, like six days before, that that will be locked in. And there's no way that even state legislatures could send different electors in. And and, and we know that today, for example, uh, we're recording this a day after, I think this is a day before this is airing, obviously, Georgia certified their election for like the third time. So how do you think this could happen? Well, I mean, the first really encouraging thing is that though Donald Trump has been shameless in trying to lobby state legislatures, leaders of state legislatures, mm -hmm. so far none of them have acknowledged that they're willing to, to actually do this. Um, and so uh, I think that they're recognizing that it's just plainly not constitutional. And it's not constitutional because though state legislatures have an important power, the power to select the manner by which um, uh, the electors are chosen, Congress also has a power. Congress has an explicit power in the same article that gives the states the power to set the day on which electors are, quote, appointed. Mm. And that day was November 3rd. So there's no way constitutionally that they can today pick another slate of electors consistent with that rule. And the second really important principle here, you know, we took, I took the case up to the Supreme Court trying to resolve whether electors had freedom to go against the vote of the people. Right. The Supreme yeah. Court said, you know, originally it's a hard question. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But democracy has overtaken it. And, and now there's no doubt that they have to follow the will of the people. And if that's true for electors, people that the framers plainly thought would have the power to make a judgment about who should be the president, it's doubly true about the state legislatures. Because the state legislatures were never expected to be the people who would be picking the president. Otherwise, you'd have these insane deals uh, that would have to be struck every time we'd have an election to please the legislature to get their votes to make it so that you could be president. So I think if this were decided in the court, it would be completely easy. Now, the law mm. also should make it easy uh, because the law, the Electoral Count Act, says that if these states have certified their votes six days before um, the Electoral College will vote, which is we're right. recording this on the sixth day. Right. Then Congress is supposed to count those votes. And the only way that Congress can overcome that presumption is if both houses basically vote that they should not have been certified or they should not have been uh, counted as certified or that they were not regular, the votes of the electors were not regularly given. Um, and obviously, Democrats control the House, so there's no way that both the House and the Senate would agree to that. But, this, but, the, but the scary part here is all of that assumes that 
Mike Pence treats the Electoral Count Act as constitutional. Sure. And if Mike Pence, who presides over the counting of the votes on uh, January 6th, believes that there's a move to be played, a game to be played here, because let's imagine there have been votes by other state slates of electors, then people have been mapping out for many months now all the games that Mike Pence could play. And, uh, and in conceivably, again, I don't think legally, but conceivably, given the politics of the way Congress doesn't work, um, uh, <laughs> count themselves into, into office. So this uh, is why there are two things, there are two really critical things um, that we ought to be looking for. Number one, we will know in six days whether there are alternative slates. If there are no alternative slates, then it's absolutely over. There's nothing that's gonna happen. I mean, there's gonna be these objections that will be raised by Congress people, maybe met by objections of the senators, but the objections go nowhere um, because you've got to have both houses rejecting the votes from these states and that's not gonna happen. Right, so but, alternative slates of electors, like, oh, hey, Melissa Carone is an elector somehow. Right, <laughs> like, right. He's randos. Because the law requires that the vice president open all certificates of uh, electors and those purporting to be certificates of electors. So, you know, you and I could just sit down and like, put together a list of our friends and like send that in as a list of the electors. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, but the point is, if it's if it's a set of electors pointed by the state legislature, this is where it begins to be troubling. And and so if that doesn't happen on the 14th, then we're then we're safe. The other thing that uh, could make it so that we're absolutely safe is if uh, at least three, let's say ideally five, Republican senators were to sign a letter that said, there is no way we are going to vote to approve the votes of a slate of electors chosen against the vote of the people. Mm -hmm. We just will not do that. And if, if they made that clear uh, so that there's no chance the Republicans or that Donald Trump would have a majority in the Senate, then nobody would play this game. Because obviously this is playing with not fire, playing with nuclear weapons. Um, mm. And and nobody's gonna uh, risk that if they see that there's no possible gain at the end. So I, I think that if in six days it turns out there is an alternative slate, then we've gotta do everything we can to get uh, the Republicans with a conscience. And you know they're not maybe many, but at least five to say, we're not gonna play this game and, and that will just shut this down even before it starts. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you just, you know, before I let you go, you've written a lot about, you know, American politics and democracy and you have thoughts on how to make it more democratic and representative. And, and now we see this sort of, not just the electoral college as a process that is arguably not representative of most Americans, obviously, but now this, bureaucracy and strange um, like Rube Goldberg machine of how it all works in the background. What are your thoughts on moving forward? Does it need to, does this process need to be reformed? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, this process has been known to be a shaky and incomplete uh, mess. Um, Rube Goldberg is a perfect uh, analogy here um, for 130 years. No, nobody's doubted that. Yeah. But when both sides act in good faith, you know, it kind of hangs together. You know, so Al Gore in 2000, some people said he shouldn't have done this. But when the Supreme Court ruled, Al Gore gave it up. Um, right. You know, he could have tried to play this game in Congress, but he didn't. Um, and, and we've seen this again and again, where both parties kind of understand that they need to keep the system going. The scary thing is when you have first a, a president and then, you know, 70 percent of his followers 
who are convinced that uh, he won the election and they're doing God's work and they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that he gets to be reelected again. And so if they don't live with this constraint of good faith, who knows how the system unravels? So yes, we have a lot to work out in the details. There's like lawyers work to work uh, to, to be done, but I'm more afraid of this fundamental um, fissure that is opening up in American culture on um, this tribalization, which, um, which goes all the way down to basic understanding of facts. The idea that we have politicized a pandemic is literally, you know, a year ago, I published a book uh, all about this problem, but, uh, but before the pandemic, I would never have imagined that this would have, this too would have become so deeply politicized, uh, yeah. you know, turned into a tribal fodder. And I think we have to figure out a way to solve that problem too, if we're ever gonna get to a democracy that we can count on working, because this democracy, you know, is obviously deeply unrepresentative. The Republican Party has won one election in the popular vote for president in the last 30 years. Right. They've twice uh, been uh, chosen without winning the popular vote. Um, and, and when you count the Senate and look at the Supreme Court, we have institutions that are deeply unrepresentative of America, and that's gonna create a, a, an anger and resistance um, that we've got to find a way to get through. And um, it's not clear exactly how we're going to be able to do that. Whew, yes, agreed. We, we only have more problems. Um, uh, <laughs> more mo money, more money, more problems. Mo, more Democrats, more problems. No. Um, <laughs> uh, Larry Lessig, Harvard Law Professor, thank you so much for talking about this, sounding the alarm. We will wait and see, but we appreciate you talking to us about it. Also, there is a petition that you can sign um, called Protect the Will of the People. And of course, in terms of pressuring your Republican uh, senators, um, equalcitizens.us is where you can sign that petition. So check it out. And thank you so much, Larry, for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and I'm so excited for my next guest because it's sort of in the realm that I am also in, which is comedy. Um, he owns and operates a long-standing live performance production company called Comedy Juice, and he recently teamed up with comedian Ben Glebe, who you might know, to launch the Nowhere Comedy Club, which is a virtual live performance platform that promotes and produces comedy shows around the world, and given that we are all stuck at home, and yes, I am in sweatpants, that's what comedy is right now. So please welcome Steve Hofstetter. Thank you for having me. And just so you know, this blazer is made of sweatpants. So <laughs> That's what it should be from now on. Everything should be made of sweatpant material. This is the first time. So I typically perform when I do live in-person shows. I perform in a suit. This is the second time since March I've worn a jacket. And the first time was like on a themed Zoom that we were goofing around that we dressed up. Right, right, right. It was the one when that was novelty. It was like, let's just dress up. And now it's like, yeah. ah. Well, we appreciate it. Um, Steve, I just want to ask you, given that you've launched Nowhere Comedy Club, uh, you have a show on Thursday that people should know about. We'll talk about that later. But what is the future for we performers when it comes to this like year of lockdown and the fact that there hasn't been much support given to artists. Uh, I mean, some artists have done well. Hey, Smash Mouth killed a bunch of people. So, <laughs> you know, if you're horrible, you know, and unfeeling and don't care about science, you can do quite well right now. But 
I think the I think the next step is that we learn how to pivot. A lot of people are still somehow afraid of digital, which is crazy to me. Like people will say to me, they're like, "What if what if someone yells out?" I'm like, "Oh, you mean like at a comedy club?" like happens all the time, then we deal with it and we move on. In fact, this time, you don't have to send a manager in to go find the person. You just bounce them. It's easy. <laughs> I, I've i been heckled by people washing their dishes on Zoom. So <laughs> Yeah, you definitely get the occasional, like there was someone on my first Zoom show I did, there was someone who had a pet parrot and didn't realize they should mute themselves. And it's very difficult because at first you just think someone is quietly explaining the jokes to somebody. And you don't realize that, oh, that's a bird. And then you, you cause you can't get mad also. Cause then you just see the bird on screen just kind of. <laughs> so you think standup will survive this moment? And, you yes. know, I mean, I'm worried. I know there's a lot of small venues and places that, you know, we perform, you've performed all over the country. What have you heard? There are, you know, there are some really good clubs that are struggling right now and that are really worried. And then there are also some horrible clubs that have been taking advantage of comedians for the last 20 years that are gone now. And that's fine <laughs> with me. Um, the, the amount of times that someone's been like, oh, man, I, I'm going to miss this club because I really came up here. And I'm just like, they've never paid you. Stop it. They Stop it. Like, you hate that club. Um, I, I think that we're going to lose some good venues. We absolutely yeah. are. And then there are going to be new good venues born out of that. Yeah. It's, there's going to be a tremendous shift. But at the same time, digital is now possible in a way it's never been before. Um, since Nowhere started in April, we've sold 35,000 tickets. Damn. We have been able to employ uh, comedians to a larger dollar number than any other comedy club in the world. And right. to be able to do that digitally is an amazing thing. And that's not going anywhere because I've had people watching shows from their hospital bed. I've had people, someone Ooh. watched a show that was agoraphobic and hadn't been out of the house in 16 years. Um, there was one person who had a horrible disease that was able to watch a show. They had children. So <laughs> like, there's a lot of things that keep you out of a nightclub and having a, a way to perform digitally allows us to reach those people. Sure. No, yeah, I like, I appreciate you like looking on the bright side of this. Um, so there was an election recently, not sure if you heard. Um, and you wrote, you wrote a Facebook post and sort of a lengthy um, post about basically, look, we are in a political moment. We are, yes, the nation is very much, uh, been divided, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially like lay off bro, stop telling me I should stick to comedy because I'm gonna touch politics. Can you just talk about what that's been for you? Like being a standup and then whenever you touch a theme that is political, being told to kind of stay in your lane. Well, my favorite thing to tell those people is I love to say, hey, you know, th there are some comedians who aren't political I could recommend to you. You seem like you'd really like Bill Cosby. So. <laughs> To I, my favorite thing to point out is I go, okay, name the best comics ever, because they're all political. Yeah. The Mount Rushmore of comedy, and I don't mean the one that Ivanka photoshops her father's face on. That's the Mount Rushmore of punchlines. But the mm -hmm. Mount Rushmore of comedy is all political. Mm -hmm. You know, the whether you're Carlin or Pryor, those are the two that are universally discussed as the best all time. And those are, they're both very political. And then you have, you know, Joan Rivers, very political. Dick Gregory, extremely political, ran for president. Yes. So <laughs> the, the history of comedy is intertwined with politics because we keep electing punchlines. And the idea of, oh, stick to comedy, 
That is a person who doesn't Facebook comment for their job. That is a person who is a, a, a plumber or, or a middle management or a CEO or a doctor or a lawyer. It doesn't matter what they do, but they're doing something other than their job. Half their timeline is political. That's actually what I see the most, not even half their timeline. The, the people who say stay in your lane, stick to comedy, their entire timeline is political memes. Yes. So shut up. You're not doing it. I don't have to either. Now, let me, I have so many questions, but do you feel like there's been, because I think uh, a lot of times people go see a comedy show and they, they do recoil. I mean, I do, people know me for my political comedy, so it's different. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I perform, they're like, why, why don't you have more political jokes? I'm like, well, because I'm trying to be <laughs> more accessible to everyone. But yeah. I've noticed a change this year, and I think it has a lot to do with who is still trying to be president. For it. But, like, I think there's been a marked change between other years where comics are unafraid to kind of lean in and talk about their politics. Do, do you feel that, too, at all? Well, okay. In, in June, when I was being extremely vocal um, about BLM. Yeah. I had a comic who I've known for many years, and he has done a lot of television where he's very non-political. And mm -hmm. he reached out to me about that. And he's like, I want to be more political. What are the downsides? Mm -hmm. And I said, the downsides are that you lose a bunch of jerks. That's the downside. <laughs> the people who truly support you are going to still support you. Yeah. And, you know, my fan base is probably 90, 10 progressive and the 10 that aren't, while I dislike their ideals, they're at least the type of people who go, eh, I don't agree with this, but I'll at least watch it. Yeah. The people who say I only need to see what I agree with and they don't agree with you, you don't you don't need them. Um, and so what I've been doing is very publicly, I've been sharing my numbers and as I've been coming, as I've been becoming more overt about my politics, I've been a political comic for 18 years. But as I've been, um, you know, I, I joke that uh, my brand is "Shut Up, Karen." And <laughs> as I've become more of that, I've been mm -hmm. sharing my numbers and showing other comics that I've been growing. I get yeah. 2,000 new Facebook followers a day. I have I've tripled my Instagram during the pandemic. It has been. Um, you know, I've been growing my social media like billionaires have been growing their bank accounts. Damn. And so, Steve, Steve Hofstadter just flexing on them. I feel, I'm <laughs> like. It's to, it's to show them that being a good person is also good for business. So yeah. go be a good person. Mm, I love it. Okay, one one last thing. So you clearly from, if you look at any of Steve's videos online, there's a lot of where, a lot of them where he talks to hecklers. And in fact, your show this Thursday on Nowhere Comedy, um, which you can get tickets to stevehoffsetter.com. Uh, yes, you did pay me to say that. Um, you're going <laughs> to talk you about, followers. <laughs> please give me like five. Um, you're going to talk about some of these videos in which you talk to hecklers, take down hecklers who are specifically Trump hecklers, although you've talked to other hecklers who don't really have clear politics, they just don't like what you're saying in the moment. That is such a bold instinct to really go forth in a time when a lot of people have stopped talking to their Trump friends and family members. Um, where do you get the nerve? Why do that? <laughs> why why engage them? Um, I mean, really, it's for the entertainment value. Like I'm not, I'm I not going to reach them. <laughs> I'm not going to reach them. You know, the guy who during the 2016 election 
you know, the first descriptor of Hillary he used was the C word. Like that, I'm not going to change that guy's mind, yeah. but I'm going to use that guy as an example to possibly reach other people. And I had people reach out to me during this election cycle and say, hey, you're the reason I voted for Biden. And which, by the way, during the primaries, I would have been ashamed of. But uh, now, yay, <laughs> you know, that's the that's the situation we're in. <laughs> um, and so being able to reach people, being able to be vocal about it and not backing down, I think is important. And it's fine if you want to try. Look, if you have a Trump supporter in your family and you want to extend that olive branch, I very much recommend you try to find common ground first. Mm. But I'm not trying to extend that olive branch. I'm trying to embolden the people who need to talk to their own families. My family's good, we're okay. So I'm trying to reach the people who need to reach other people. Absolutely, and you know, it reminds me of this moment where Chris Cuomo, totally non-political, but Chris Cuomo gets sort of like muscled up on by like some dude who starts calling him Guido and like Mario, whatever, like being anti-Italian, I guess, if that's a mm -hmm. thing. And yeah. then when Chris Cuomo starts to get super aggro with him, the guy is like, oh, whoa, bro, yeah, wow, I respect you more. And it was so interesting to see that if you kind of stare down the beast, so to speak, you'll get respect just for openly confronting someone who's being heinous. Well, the, the heinous person rarely respects back because they don't think that they're heinous. Sure. They think they're doing a good job. They think that their that their truck caravan is going to make a difference. <laughs> but the weird, they always hated caravans. But the I, I think what it does is it does embolden the other people. And you know, I I have been called uh, I've been called chaotic good for the D and D people out there. Um, the idea of not letting other people decide what your opinion is, I think, is very important. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Steve Hofstetter, uh, comedian, entrepreneur, uh, started Nowhere Comedy Club, and you can see him this Thursday at GetTicketsSteveHofstetter.com. He's talking all about his takedown videos. Maybe there's some ideas for all of you out there who have Trump supporters, uh, maybe just in your comments. Um, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. It's such an honor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care, and thank you all for watching The Conversation. I've been Francesca Fiorentini. Good night, evening, morning.